Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your fervently terrified host, Abraham. And I am your Bible-thumping host, Shane. We're a psychology podcast, and in October, we're a horror-specifically themed psychology podcast. So we're on episode three of this year's collection of spooky-themed episodes. So spooky, so scary. I'm working on the notes for the last episode in the series, and there is an official philosophy about the thing called spooky non-agentism, which we're going to talk about, which is like, cool. I was like, that's an official title. And I'm like, I'm so glad that we're studying something that actually has spooky in the title. That's right. Yes, that is a major victory for sure. Yeah. And so this year, what we've been doing, if you haven't been keeping up, is we've been focusing on all things Satan, satanic, demonic related. Yeah. And today we are talking about the satanic panic, which is really good alliteration or like that, you know, the sound, whatever the sound is. I can't remember what that is. I'm not an English major, but you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I think it's just a rhyme for that one. Rhymes work. Yeah, that's good. That makes sense. (laughs) That's the word I was looking for. Okay. Uh, I was like, <laughs> there are lots of different names for things, for sure. And, you know, we, we like acrostic poems sometimes. We'll do those, but but I think this was just right. Yeah. Anyway, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, there are, there are so many things that we could acknowledge as holidays, celebrations, and major events in the world. And if you are joining us on that today, on that day, or even afterward, you can recognize that today, October 18th, is... The National Chocolate Cupcake Day and rejoice in the fact that that such a day exists. I mean, what other holiday do you need? You know, (laughs) it's also the the day of unity, which sounds nice. I like that idea. Uh huh. (laughs) You said you hate that one. No, I said I I need that one because you said what other holidays (laughs) do you need? So we got we got one. Oh, yeah, I guess we do need that one. (laughs) Healthcare aid day. Nice. That sounds nice. Yeah. It's also uh, Kati Bihu, which is the solemn celebration of the beginning of patty season. So for folks that are working in rice patties and in that space, um, it's the celebration of the season's beginning. Oh, got you. Yeah. It's National Mashed Potato Day. I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, I think we need that one, too. A holiday that we don't need, though, is National Necktie Day. And we definitely do not need National No Beard Day. That one can maybe yeah. go away. That can kick rocks. That can pound dirt. It's also National Speak Up for Victims of Sexual Abuse Day. Definitely need that day to elevate those voices. Totally. And intrinsically related to our our episode for today. So coincidence there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ride to work day. So I think that could be riding anything. A scooter, a bicycle, maybe a train. Yeah. Any of those things work. A horse. A horse. That would be interesting. I couldn't imagine riding a horse to work, especially because I do in-home therapy. Yeah. So like I'd have to ride my horse to every house. Yeah. It would take so long. Make sure you, you tie it up to, you know, whatever horse picket there is. Yeah. You just got to watch. just got to watch out for those horse thieves. You know, that's the big thing. <laughs> it's true. It's also world menopause day. Okay. It is freedom from bullies week, which means all bullies take the week off, please. Maybe the rest of the year. Yes. Or just take as much time as you need. Yeah, the rest of your life. Yeah, the rest of your life is fine. It's also National Chemistry Week. So uh, for those of you who are in chemistry class and, you know, lighting different substances on fire to see those chemical reactions and different color flames. Good for you. Yeah, I like that. It's National Food Bank Week. Definitely an important one. Yes. And it's also National Wolf Awareness Week. Cool. I think former guest Dr. Andrew Bulla would be a big fan of. Yes, totally. Well, we're actually talking, as we said, about satanic-themed things and getting into, we've sort of followed from this idea of black magic, we've talked about Satanism, now we're talking about the satanic panic, sort of a fallout of all of that. 
Got to issue sort of a trigger warning at the beginning of this. This is going to have some disturbing content, some descriptions of things that are related to sexual abuse, particularly of children, as well as violence towards children. These are descriptions of things that allegedly took place and were not corroborated. Most of this is completely ridiculous, but warning that there are descriptions that might be difficult to hear. Right. Absolutely. I think where we have to start this discussion is in the idea or the kind of the perspective of an us versus them type of mentality. And that's kind of where this starts. So the idea of an us versus them mentality has been kind of baked into our language since as far back as we can trace since one group of Neanderthals got into a dispute with another group of Neanderthals over who they had claimed to a delicious strawberry bush. We're making that up. But that is a thing that has probably happened is is going, this is my bush. They want to take your bush. We're not going to let them take your bush. And if you've ever heard something like that, then... You know what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is an in-group and an out-group. You belong to whatever in-group you're in. Everyone else is the enemy of that group. We have those words, and that allows us to make a distinction between people as belonging to or not belonging to groups, and that those groups, for some reason, matter. And that allows us to have an us versus them, which allows us to have a fear of the other. Even though we are all part of the same species, the things that distinguish us are mostly arbitrary, right? if not entirely arbitrary. We tend to create these dichotomies whether or not they exist. We have heaven versus hell, good versus evil, black versus white, male versus female, capitalism versus communism, doing the right thing versus being Ron DeSantis. Like, uh-huh. we just create these dichotomies out in the world. Yeah, that last one, though, I think is uh, that one's pretty clear. Like, that's an acceptable <laughs> dichotomy that we have to recognize. <laughs> not an imagined one. That one's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that one's that one's pretty tangible. You can see that pretty clearly in a lot of different things. But. Throughout our history, basic dehumanization and demonization of others has included the accusation of killing or otherwise harming babies and children as a way to drum up righteous fear and hatred of the outgroup. I think of Maude Flanders from The Simpsons when she's like, well, somebody think of the children. <laughs> like, I think, think of that of kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, it's always that argument, you know? Yeah, no, totally. You know, I, I think it's because that... Children are this vulnerable group. They're a very precious resource. They're widely acknowledged throughout human history as being crucial to the survival of a civilization, of our species, of families, of bloodlines, etc. And so killing or harming children being, I think, symbolic of one of the most ultimately evil things that you can do. Again, their innocence, their relevance to the future, all of that. And therefore, like the best way to create and demonize another group is to accuse them of destroying that ultimately precious resource, right? Right. Because they can't stoop any lower than that. And so you can legitimately justify then fear of that group. And as you kind of like start to unpack that particular thing, you start to realize how hypocritical people are around that. Totally. It's going to be shocking when we get into that. I think at the end of the day, yeah, it's like, doesn't it always feel like you're on the right side when you are being the champion for the voiceless? Like, that right. is the thing. Like, if you are, if your side is the champion for the people who can't defend themselves, then you must be good. Yeah. <laughs> In this case, whether or not you're right that those people need defending and that the threat to them is real is unimportant to the distinction of you having the heroic stance of being anti whatever threatens that group. Exactly. So, as Christianity was growing in ancient Rome, Romans began accusing Christians of having a secret cultish cabal in which they killed babies and children. And that's from uh, Wagemakers 2010. What a great last name, Wagemakers. Right. Yeah. The church father, Tertullian, lamented the crimes leveled against them, writing, quote, We are said to be the most criminal of men. The score of our sacramental baby killing and the baby eating that goes with it. Oh, the glory of the magistrate who had brought to light some Christians who had eaten up to date a hundred babies. End quote. Yeah. Sounds, uh, sounds intense. That was the Christian church. Again, they're saying like, we're being accused of this absolute nonsense and like, listen to the things they're saying about us. This is, this is crazy. Yeah. That was the Romans accusing the Christians. Now later, the Christians are accusing Jews of ritually killing babies in secret underground demonic gatherings. Uh-huh. A Christian Greek Democritus wrote that, quote, every seven years, the Jews catch a stranger whom they offer as a sacrifice, killing him by tearing his flesh into shreds, end quote. <sighs> yeah. 
I just, uh, it just, it's, I mean, like, come on, take a second to like, think about this and how silly it sounds. It's such right. a weaponized thing, but it's so silly when you think about it. Yeah. It goes further too. So of course, witches were accused of luring children and killing them or cursing them or killing other children and babies. And ironically, some children were prosecuted for witchcraft and then executed. So there's also that. <laughs> yeah. So the people who are... <laughs> who are accusing witches of killing children, those people who were doing that accusing actually accused children of being witches and then killed those children. Like uh-huh. the irony, the hypocrisy, pretty astounding, I think, the level of that. Yeah, it's so absurd. The fever pitch of witch hunting inspired a flurry of creativity about what might look like communion with the demonic forces. They're, they created this idea of a black mass because this is sort of a bastardization of a Christian mass, you know, the Sabbat or the Sabbath, black robes, human sacrifice, bestiality, animal familiars, and the torture and murder of the innocent were not actually inspired by, by some text, the Bible, or any other folklore precedent. They were essentially cooked up by the executioners, the inquisitors, and then they were sort of confirmed and elaborated upon by the would-be victims whilst the would-be perpetrators of this were being tortured. You know, so they've got these people, they're actively, and we talked about this when we talked about witches, right? They're actively torturing these people, saying, you did this, you did this, and they would try and get these people to confess to it, and eventually... When people would break under the pressure and would confess to something that they did not do, and they would elaborate on it to, again, to just make the torture end. Yeah, I mean, all you got to do is go listen to the False Confessions episode that we did that talks about that exact thing. Like, under duress, people will admit to anything. And if you look at, like, medieval torture mechanisms, if somebody were literally pulling my joints out of their sockets, I would do anything to make it stop. Like, yeah, absolutely. I would admit, yeah, you think that I'm boiling children for soup? Sure. Get, just stop stop dislocating my shoulders. It hurts. <laughs> right. And then ironically, they might dismember somebody who, who never confesses to doing anything wrong. And afterward, and they're all blood out and gone. Then they might say, huh, they may have been telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. How many times has that happened? Oh, God. So many times. Yeah. So. Art imitates fictionalized life, and this fear was a muse for writers, painters, playwrights to write lurid, captivating stories that provoked fear and attention and money from their eager audiences. The fear mongers created the ideas, the artists turned them into visual representation and sold those ideas over and over and over again, which is why we have Slayer's Reign in Blood. <laughs> yeah, so essentially we we got this I like all these depictions, all these stories, like those were just sort of created out of the process of fear and inquisition. And the artists yeah. kind of ran with it, like and created these works of art that depicted those stories that people had just created. So this wasn't none of this ever happened, of course, but it made for great storytelling. And so people or at least at captivating storytelling. And so people were interested in it. And so they made, you know, these artists made a living by depicting those sorts of things. And to that point, I mean, like how many, how many folklores were used to like keep people out of certain places or to avoid certain groups? I mean, that's like, if you don't know what the boogeyman is, I mean, that's exactly what that is. It's a tale. It's a folklore to like keep children in line. So like this idea of storytelling, essentially coercive storytelling is established to do just that. It's set up to control certain behaviors and scare the shit out of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This practice is old. This whole idea has been going on for centuries. It is uninspired, dusty nonsense at this point. This is practice (laughs) of of creating this, this fear. It is how the dim witted gain attention and followers and money. Uh-huh. By attracting willing believers into fearing some pretend outgroup. And then they get them to form an alliance, or they form an alliance with a righteous in-group under the banner of heaven, and whatever group portrays themselves as the victims and heroes against their common enemy. Then they get their followers to perform just incredible atrocities in the name of their group and under the banner of their cause. Right. So speaking of some of these groups where we talk about like these these folks that are righteous, they get together just to make some money. Here are some ads. So we've been talking about the history of the practice of essentially creating fear of another out group and and sort of finishing up that part of the conversation. These groups that are created to 
gather people to their cause and sort of get them to go out and do their bidding. It keeps them, it keeps the money flowing. It keeps them in power. They create the fear. They recruit subjects. They take their money. They, they drum up some fevered belief in whatever conspiracy they're peddling at the time. And then they go out and do real harm and violence to the accused perpetrators of these supposed crimes. These are pretty much always innocent victims who get caught up in the crosshairs of that group for one reason or another. In the case of the witch trials, sometimes it was personal vendettas. In many of these other cases, it's maybe someone who they they wanted to sort of take down because they represented success or wealth. And other times it was the exact opposite is because they represented poverty and desperation, like whatever it might be. They pick their, their target and they go after them. Right. And so you kind of go back to this idea that like thinking of this is like there's a group that's a there's there's a secret cabal of people doing evil stuff. Right. And there's also this 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 thing that's happening, like people are afraid and they identify people who might be these evildoers. But if there were a secret cabal of evildoers bent on destruction and chaos, that's pretty much how we would expect them to operate is like to go out and do these things that we're talking about, these atrocities. But it's not happening the way that people think it is. So we're sort of up to the point now to where we've gone through the history of this. There are iterations of this. As we said, there's like the Inquisition, there's the witch trials, there there's the Romans accused the Christians, the Christians accused the Jews, later the Christians accused the witches, um, et cetera. Uh-huh. It's all gone on. McCarthyism and the Red Scare of like communism was kind of another preceding version of the satanic panic and another one of these moral panics. A little different. It was more political and governmental than anything, but it, it was a similar thing of like the communists doing all these terrible things. And I definitely saw some sources where people had at least a notion that communists were in some way harming babies and children. And you see the same exact narrative in QAnon. It's a modern version of this where so much of the drain the swamp rhetoric and all that stuff is coming from this space where apparently celebrities and politicians are just drinking baby adrenal fluid from aborted fetuses. I mean, that is a real thing that QAnon folks believe. Is that that celebrities are drinking baby adrenal fluid? Yeah, and it's and it's the exact. I mean, they're the exact reiterated playbook as has always been in play, right? Right. It is the same fear of the the baby killing and the the satanic rituals and alignments. Same thing. It is just the newest version of that, and they didn't even change their message. They like it like it got slightly more scientific by referring to things that like people know more about now as you said like with adrenal fluids i don't know that anybody knew what adrenal fluids were yeah adrenal adrenochrome yeah like you know, they call it, they years call it ago. adrenochrome yeah you're right they call it adrenochrome because it sounds more official right yeah so they they like adopted more modern terms but they're otherwise using the exact same playbook point by point that was done during all those other sort of moral panics and, and scares where again you're just trying to scare people into joining your cause they give you money they carry out atrocities under your direction and it's really just gets to the fact that fear is one of the most common ways people manipulate other people into believing them into doing things for them into giving them money and and believe in their cause you fear of immigrants mm-hmm. fear of lgbtq people mm-hmm. fear of other races fear of other religions fear of being replaced uh-huh. fear of drugs if you can convince people they're under threat you can get their money and support. And that is just, that is the way that they have frequently commonly operated. Right. And, and you might be listening to this and going like, well, I'm not as susceptible to that. But if you were somebody who participated in the dare program, who felt the rising panic after nine 11, when it came to Muslim folks, I mean, all of those are examples of real life things that have happened that have impacted, like at least in the United States, I would say, yeah, like these are things that really happened that we had experiences with that were very easy to get caught up in because of, all of the fear mongering that goes with it. But we're not talking about any of that stuff right now. It's good that it had that precedent. What we are talking about is the fear of Satan himself. And so it is worth going into the very specific things that happened that led up to the satanic panic in the United States and why this became such a dangerous thing during the 80s. Yeah, and we haven't really defined it, and that's because I think the (laughs) definition comes from the description of it, right? So I think as we describe 
like what what happened during the satanic panic that'll be the description of what it is and we can give a summary at the end but it is worth sure. understanding all the factors going on in the United States and around the world that were leading up to what was going to become the satanic panic so remember how we talked about earlier in this conversation artists were cashing in on satanic fears by using those stories to create depictions of arts Stories, plays, books, etc., music were all things that were then inspired, and they created those. Those got portrayed in some religious institutions, some not, but either way, that was the way they cashed in. Okay, so that was a thing people did, as they used that to write these stories. There was this book called A Place Called Dagon by Herbert Gorman in 1927. This is a fictional novel, a fictional novel about a uh-huh. cult in rural Massachusetts. Now, For those of you who the name Dagon sounds familiar, it's probably because this would be familiar to Lovecraftian fans of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh This book was influential in some of Lovecraft's later writings where he did invoke the name of Dagon, and often many of his stories took place in Massachusetts. Right. I mean, even like later works by people who were influenced by Lovecraft take place in Massachusetts. I mean, Lovecraft Country, I believe, takes place in like deep Massachusetts. So I believe so. Yeah. Such a good book. Anyway, this kind of stuff is like the beginning, what you find of the kind of movements of counterculture, right? Hippies and drug use. Like that's an example of like a counterculture that people were afraid of. People were afraid of hippies that went from hippies being peace loving to all of a sudden being the Charles Manson type of hippies that were like hurting people. Like that became like a fear mongering thing. Heavy metal is an example of like kind of pulling from a lot of this influence where the you know you saw these tales of black robe groups, pentagrams, horns, a preoccupation with the dead, and you see that kind of ongoing thing, the recurring theme among heavy metal, even though now it's a little bit more tongue in cheek. And you also saw the rise of atheism. So all of these things were happening around the same time, you know, or at least at least the time that um, we are talking about in the '80s, where you know all this kind of the artists that are pulling from the influences and doing that. Leading up to the 80s, you had the hippies, you had drug use, you had the kind of disenfranchisement of that group, you had heavy metal starting to take the rise, and you started to see this rise in atheism. So it just made sense that like evil was everywhere. Yeah, it really did. It was exactly that. It was starting, it was just, it looked like the illusion of the idea of this like insulated nuclear family was deteriorating rapidly with the rise of counterculture. Yeah. You also had other things that were going on. Like you had Aleister Crowley's black masses of the 1920s in London. We talked a little bit about black magic and Aleister Crowley in our left hand path magic episode. You had Anton LaVey's similarly performative church of Satan that he started in San Francisco. You also had simultaneously a rise in religious fervor that was going on that was partially in response to the counterculture, the existence of the black masses and satanic, the church of Satan in San Francisco. Like there's all these things that were going on here too. Right. And then on top of that, the rise of toxic conservative ideology and the emphasis on that nuclear family really kind of pushed things into this space. But on top of that, you had the country going into a recession, women going to work, They were leaving children with babysitters. Again, this is specific to a period of time in the United States where women were considered homemakers. They weren't supposed to be career people. They were supposed to stay home, take care of the kids, do all that stuff. Like terrible time for women. Right. Just to to kind of like be clear about that. And so the idea of kind of going to work made women feel guilty about leaving their kids behind, leaving them with babysitters, fearing what might happen to them, fearing that they might be failing to protect their children from other people and those dangers of society because they're leaving them with babysitters. I mean, there's a lot of kind of like general, there's some general fears around just kind of leaving your kids at home. Yeah. And guilt around it because they were supposed to be protecting yes. them. And, and they're sort of just trying to learn to trust this brand new system more widespread in that way. So yeah, absolutely. There was also just a general fear about the welfare of children. And part of what was going on here is that there was for a long time, the idea of sexual abuse towards kids was something that wasn't really discussed. Right. Again, 
the whole, I mean, all of this idea of like this nuclear family and like every, you know, people pull themselves up by the bootstraps and like most people are, are this sort of fit into this cookie cutter life was eroding because that was never how things really were. Like that was kind of how it was being spun. But that meant that people were not actually talking about the sexual abuse that was happening to children. And now in the 70s and 80s, mostly the 70s, there was a rise in discussion acknowledging that sexual abuse did happen towards children. And this is after many years of denying that it happened or underplaying that it happened, saying that it didn't happen, all of that sort of thing. And now they're sort of saying, like, actually, this is happening. It has happened. We need to acknowledge that that's the case because that's a problem. Right. And so then journalists started looking for corroborating reports. They started accepting anything that confirmed their bias, which is an issue of journalistic integrity. But what they were doing was they were tapping into this particular nervousness associated with these rapid changes in culture. They were leaning and preying on things like the guilt of leaving your kids behind, the discussions of your kids could be in danger. And at the time, too, remember, leading up to the 80s, we're talking late 60s, 70s, where there is a a huge amount of serial killers going on and like these violent crimes that are happening, like most famous serial killers are from the 60s through the 80s in the United States, at least. Right. Absolutely. And so in the 70s, there's a lot of fear around this. And especially people like um, I believe it was Richard Ramirez who was like leaning heavily into like like Satan is making me do this. And he was like particular. He was known for having particularly gruesome crime scenes. Yeah. The news picked that up and was like, oh, like this guy loves Satan and look what he's doing. And so all of these things like kind of this this nervousness, this fear, this uneasiness, I guess, in the culture made it rife for this kind of growth in a type of panic to kind of get back to those more conservative, simple roots. There was a basic buildup of moral panic going on. And another example of this, as I mentioned, there was this general fear of anything drug related was you started having the drug wars and there's that whole play called reefer madness, which was essentially a just bad crazy depiction of what someone might do if they got high. Yeah. I mean, it's various stories. It's completely ridiculous, but like that was just an example, a symptom, if you will, of the general moral panic that was building. Right. And then the book, Michelle remembers the true story of a year long contest between innocence and evil is published in 1980 to just kick it off. Great, great time in the world. Yeah. This book was written by Canadian psychologist, Lawrence Pazder and his patient, who is the subject of the book, Michelle Smith. Who went on to become his wife? Well, we don't need to unpack ethics codes there, but like, I don't know. That's probably not a good thing. Yeah, you know, I think the, the conflict is pretty obvious. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty clear. Now, the book outlines Michelle's SRA, which was a repressed memory recovered through Pazder's therapy, which details Michelle suffering and abuse at the hands of a satanic cult during the 1950s. So that's what the book is kind of a harrowing tale of that. Yeah, and I realize now we haven't actually stated SRA stands for Satanic Ritualistic Abuse or Satanic Ritual Abuse. That was a a term that gets thrown around a lot during the Satanic Panic. Now, again, going back to this book, Michelle Remembers, and they're sort of claiming that she had been abused by the Satanic cults. Of course, this book comes out and the claims were immediately discredited. They were debunked. They were shown to be completely fraudulent. But because this was such a thrilling, enticing book at the height of the beginning of a moral panic, that didn't matter. Damage was done. The book was a bestseller, and it absolutely ignited a fuse in the festering heap of toxic bullshit that had been building for years, resulting in an explosion of full-blown panic among American families fearing for their children's safety. Right. I mean, if you lack critical thinking skills, then this is the scariest tale of all. Right. Yeah. But the fact that it was like kind of debunked and then people still believe it is not something that is foreign to us today in 2023. Unfortunately, not an unfortunate problem that we run into. But as the inferno of insanity increased, it was helped along by questioning strategies of police, like those folks that were kind of questioning and pressuring people, other authority that coerced confessions, church groups organizing groups of vigilant parents to avenge the unclaimed slain and missing children. That sounds familiar. It sounds like something like Moms for Liberties would do, <laughs> which those groups, those folks, those people that were like taking children and like slaying them and all that did not exist, not in the way that they were describing it. Oh, and the missing children didn't exist. There's like right. nobody's filing missing children's report and they're out there looking for missing children. Right, right. Exactly. That's that's also a thing. And then the unchecked credulity of the media. So this was all a problem. In May 1995, 2020 host Hugh Downs opened a segment on devil worship with the line, quote, police have been skeptical when investigating these acts. 
just as we are in reporting them. But there is no question that something is going on out there, and that's sufficient reason for 2020 to look into it, end quote. And then went on to describe ritualistic animal mutilations, satanic graffiti, and satanic rock music with hidden demonic black mass messages. That sounds really irresponsible, by the way. Right. In 1988, NBC's Geraldo Rivera famously, you know, discredited in a lot of his journalistic endeavors. Right. Not a great reporter, more like a, no. a charlatan, if you will. But to an audience of more than 20 million households, described gruesome crimes, showed child testimony of abuse, and interviewed Ozzy Osbourne, which I cannot. I didn't watch that interview, but watching Ozzy Osbourne interviews is a fascinating exercise. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So, yeah, there's, there's just everyone sort of taking at face value whatever ideas, whatever fear, whatever panic, whatever is being said. They're like that. You know, there's definitely something going on here. Like, that's just not something that you should say when there's not definitely something going on. You know, right. Fact check yourself a little bit, please. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's really important to remember that just taking a story and running with it without. And, and that's not to say that, like child abuse wasn't happening. That's not to say that like children weren't going missing. They absolutely were. But in the context of satanic rituals and the things that they're describing here, not at all. Like yeah. for the same reason, there's never been poison in your can in your candy from Halloween. And given what we understand now about some of the abuse children actually did suffer, for example, at the hands of priests, it's very well documented. Some parents, there was some amount of actual perpetrator pointing the finger to deflect attention away from themselves. Like the people who were actually doing the abuse, going out and screaming about these satanic cults, because if people are out hunting for satanic cults, they're not looking at the people who are doing the accusing, right? This is right. also a similar practice during the witch trials again. And these people who were doing the actual abuse were not satanic. Nope. In many instances, they again belonged to religious institutions or they didn't, but they didn't belong to any kind of satanic cult or, or ritual or group of, of any sort in that nature. So right. anyway, this episode is sponsored by you, our listeners and our Patreon supporters, and apparently these ads. Okay, so we've been building to the satanic panic sort of events as they took place. So let's let's right, go ahead and jump into some of the biggest allegations of the satanic panic. So remember that what we were talking about is kind of a manufactured fear as we go into this. Yes. So the McMartin's preschool in California. In 1983, teachers were accused of satanic ritual abuse or SRA. One parent, Judy Johnson told police that doctors told her that her son had been sodomized. Her son, two years old at the time, said that the teaching staff, Mr. Ray, was responsible. Yep. Okay. There's too much here to dig into it for very long, but suffice it to say that the extent to which this was ever actually claimed by doctors is not totally known, and that there weren't any clear medical texts or descriptions for how to tell whether or not you could look at someone and determine if they had been sexually abused at the time that this was going on. That's now much more well-established now, but right. back then, again, the fact that people were admitting that it happened ever was just coming to light, and so there wasn't a lot of clear guidelines. And so there was some looking at this and being like, oh, I don't know. Sure. If, if you think that looks weird, then okay, we agree. What's well, sort of how it went. Right. So she put out the accusation. Now the police are like, oh my God, we need to get information. And so they sent 200 letters out to different families specifically saying, has your child suffered at the hands of Mr. Ray, the accused? And this obviously drastically tainted the investigation before they even started interviewing people. Like it was basically they screwed up permanently in an unrecoverable way. And that specific act, I believe, is now actually taught of a, this is what not to do when you're doing an yeah. investigation. If anybody here is interested in looking at all of the times and all of the major things that the police forces have done to mess up investigations, you would be shocked at how often it happens. Yeah. It is astounding how many people could have been caught or, you know, arrested or charged uh, had, you know, these forces done you know, any sort of like logical detective work. It's real bad. So the other school students were taken to the Children's Institute International where their videotaped quote unquote confessions show how wildly inappropriate and misleading the interrogations were. Social worker Kim McFarlane asked the children leading questions such as this quote. Do you remember the naked pictures? 
The children were lied to and told other children had already confessed to their yucky secrets, so the interrogated child needed to speak up too, and they were ridiculed if they didn't comply with and agree with the allegations, uh, agree to the allegations at least. And McFarlane at one point called a child a scaredy cat because he denied the allegations of abuse. God, yeah. that is horrible. Yeah, so this social worker was like really pushing them to say that stuff happened. It's like basically like like I said, like without giving any context, not just not just asking what happened, tell me about what what has gone on there. It was like tell me about this specific bad thing that happened. Right. And then the kids could elaborate on it and be, and then try and coerce them saying like, "Oh, other kids have already confessed, so you need to confess too." And then there was the like if you saying like this is a thing that happened, the kids like I don't remember that. And they're like, you're just lying. You're just trying to, you know, you're being a scaredy cat, like trying to like coerce them, like wildly, wildly inappropriate. Right. But eventually because of this with McFarland's heavy handed influence, children did come up with stories. They came up with stories of being fondled, being quote unquote, naked movie stars of being abused in secret underground tunnels. And because these are kids who don't understand what's going on, who are essentially just trying to you know, please the interviewee in this case. In this case, they told them that there were teachers who could fly. They witnessed the sacrifice of small animals. They witnessed a goat man chimera. So some person who was half person, half goat. They witnessed a baby being sacrificed. They said they were taken to a graveyard to observe a mutilated corpse being exhumed. They had children being dressed as witches and then those children floating up into the air and flying. Like these are the kind of things that you get out of these confessions. How do you take any of that seriously? Right. Well, and, and also, too, I mean, having kids myself, for sure, they're not going to keep that secret. Right. Like, there's no way that all of those kids kept that secret that for that long. Like, and what I mean by that is I'm not talking about secrets of abuse and stuff. What I'm talking about is, like, if my son was in a preschool and went on a field trip to a graveyard, for sure he would tell me that he went to a right. graveyard. He would let something slip somewhere. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't have to be inter interrogated to find that information out. So unfortunately, several defendants were identified and the trial lasted until 1990. This was a seven year trial and angry, terrified vigilante parents and police raided the school and dug underneath it looking for tunnels and evidence of wrongdoing. Yes. What did they find? Not tunnels. Because there were no nope. tunnels. Nope. There was no evidence of pornography anywhere. There were no photos or videos. There was no, like, just missing pieces of underwear that were recovered. No blood. No animal bones from slaughter. No ash from burn pits. No missing children, presumably sacrificed or cannibalized. And no uh -huh. evidence of cult activity of any sort. Now, some out there uh, will uh, assert that the evidence was simply destroyed, but it, there's really no reason to believe that it was destroyed. And also that thoroughly, like that's just, there's so much evidence for that. There would have been something left. Yeah. There's just absolutely none whatsoever that's left anywhere. Right. And the parents and the quote unquote advocates shouted their slogan, quote, believe the children on the street corners and outside of the court proceedings, even in the face of no evidence at all. Yeah. So eventually the charges were dropped against almost everyone except Ray, Mr. Ray, and his mother. Interestingly, important to note, Judy Johnson, the mother who kicked off the whole thing, as you recall, she was like, you know, took her son to doctors and told them that he'd been abused. They went ahead and confirmed this. Uh -huh. She accused the school of doing it. She was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, although the defense was not made aware of this in time to actually use it during the trial. Right. So the jury was deadlocked and no conviction was brought under pressure from parents. The prosecution tried again. And again, the jury was deadlocked and the judge declared that they would not be tried again. So seven years, $15 million later, this case still holds the record for the country's longest and most expensive criminal trial, which is just absurd. Yeah. Like just think of that. Like they wasted $15 million for what? For ridiculous, magical thinking nonsense, right? That right. is so much time and lives ruined and trauma inflicted is a result of the in interrogations and not because of anything that actually happened right. at that school. And so the McMartins are just one of the most famous cases of the satanic panic, but there were actually hundreds of others. And we'll, we'll outline just a couple of sort of, again, major things that happened that it's possible, you know, our listeners may or may not have heard of, but I, I found some of these interesting and at least thought provoking. I think it's worth talking about this because it is definitely about the impact that this 
kind of cultural phenomenon had, right? So in 1985, leaflets began mysteriously circulating that accused the then Procter & Gamble, today simply known as P&G, as being a satanic organization. The leaflet alleged that their logo of a bearded man looking at 13 stars was a satanic symbol. There, at the at the time, 108-year-old logo. And if you see a logo, it looks like just the side of a coin. It's a bearded man looking to the left, and there are 13 stars that look like they form some type of constellation. Well, and they were supposed to represent the 13 original colonies was all that that was. So, right. And it was old. Like at the time that they did this, this was already over 100 years old, that symbol of this company. So Mm -hmm. anyway, Mm -hmm. Procter & Gamble did some impressive damage control. At a press hearing, their vice president stated, quote, it's simply not true. We haven't the vaguest idea how it started. All we know is people are believing it. And do you know how hard it is to fight a rumor? End quote. And it makes a good point. Like once someone floats ideas like this out there, it's extremely difficult to do anything about because it takes no time at all to start a false rumor. It takes a lot of time to debunk it. And people know this. That's why you get people who lie and flood out these nonsensical conspiracy ideas, because there's no there's no limit to how many you can say and people just gobble it up and doing damage control takes a lot of time to deconstruct all the nonsense. Right. Absolutely. So PNG sent representatives to church, filed lawsuits and pursued court cases. One newspaper reported on PNG who sued a couple in Kansas for making malicious and libelous statements and called for a boycott. And they, the couple was calling for a boycott on PNG products. Turns out the couple was running a competing consumer goods company. So Maybe they had a vested interest in P&G not doing well. And we don't know if they started the leaflets, but they definitely tried to capitalize on the momentum. Sure. Because, again, it did well for them financially. So it's possible that part of the campaign that started against them was done by some rival people or groups of people or something like that. Corporate espionage. Yeah. Now, there's more. In the late 60s and 70s, there was also some rise in panic around the idea of aliens and UFOs and that sort of thing. It's your episode about that from last year. Mm -hmm. As well as, as part of this, were these cattle mutilations, which many people will likely have heard of. Now, in Minnesota, there were two prisoners who tipped off investigators that the mutilations were part of a satanic ritual of a group of hell-oriented, quote-unquote hell-oriented, <laughs> biker cult gang people. And the re- <laughs> Hell-oriented might be my favorite adjective ever. Right, that's pretty good. <laughs> All right, so here's the result of what happened because these prisoners told the investigators in Minnesota about the hell-oriented biker cult. First of all, there was a Satan-themed biker gang like that actually did exist, or at least they sort of they made logos to that effect, and maybe even called themselves like Satan's crew or something like that. Yeah. But there was no evidence at all that they actually participated in any cattle mutilation, so any charges that were leveled were dropped. Many of them, the investigations just petered out, and there was no further follow-up on it. Another is that the two prisoners asked to be moved to, to different jails because they feared retribution for ratting out the people of the biker gang. And the third thing is, both prisoners escaped from their new prison assignments once they were moved. <laughs> So I can imagine what their motives were. Yeah, that sounds about right. You know, I'm reading a book right now on Hell's Angels, and some biker names are so dorky. Like, uh-huh. you know, it's like Satan's buddies and, I don't know, biker pals. But, like, so every now and again, Hell's Angels will come up, and it's like, they were kind of scary, but not to this level that people used to talk to them about. Totally. All right, so Mike Warnicky, this guy, he's a whole thing. He is, <laughs> yeah. he is he just is a, a whole thing. thing. I was reading about him, I was like, God, he might be in a whole episode unto himself, because there's a... Uh, man such a strange somehow he's like if larry the cable guy were worse yeah honestly like that's that's a great way to put it so anyway this guy had found great success as a christian comedian which i think is really funny putting those two things together (laughs) but then also saw that the satanic panic was an opportunity to cash in so he claimed he had been a high-ranking official in the satanic church before finding his way to jesus He claimed that the cattle mutilations were Satanists checking off their grocery list in preparation for the Sabbath. And of course, it was later revealed they had never been affiliated with any Satanic organization and fabricated everything about his claims about Satanists and his involvement and all that. But the damage was done. People glommed onto his stuff and he had books and specials and all kinds of things that sold really well. It made a lot of money over this. Exactly. Yeah, made a lot of money. 
All right. Uh, in 1992, Francis and Dan Keller, who ran a Texas daycare, were accused of abusing children by having, among other things, a parrot peck at their private parts, as well as sacrificing baby tigers in satanic rituals. That's incredibly specific. Yeah. I'm imagining they went to a zoo at some point with the kids, and then that came out shortly after or something. But anyway... So here's what happened in this case. So they were accused of this. They served 21 years of a 48-year sentence, and they were not released from prison until 2013, just 10 years ago, due to a lack of evidence and false testimony that was revealed to have been part of their court proceedings. Twenty, Just 21 years, just 21 years of your life. No big deal. You know, a little over two decades that you spend in prison. That is wild. At least you're out now. No harm done. This ruined people's lives. Here's another example. In 1993, the West Memphis three, which in itself deserves its own episode, but like, we're not a true, we're not a true crime podcast either. So like we (laughs) recommend going, listen to some true, we're on our way. But if you're not familiar with this case, these three teenagers were accused of murdering another kid in a satanic ritual. These were like kind of goth metalhead kids. And one of the kids that's like what the main like kind of guy was known for being like really confrontational and really sarcastic. And because he didn't think there was enough evidence to charge them, he was like, nah, this will be fine. I'll just be kind of the snot nosed kid. And he, they were sentenced to 18 years. They went to prison for 18 years before they were released in 2011 because of the public outcry and the lack of evidence. And again, false testimony around that particular crime. Exactly right. And we'll talk a little bit more about this false testimony thing because there were so many people who confessed. There were so many people who were giving their firsthand victim statement accounts as evidence that were entered into these courts and part of why this went as far as it did. But the problem here is that like this, what comes with these fear-based approaches to manipulating people and the rise of moral panics is that fear-inspired reality. With the seeds of sensationalized ideas planted and taking root, some people took the suggestions of fear-mongering as inspiration. As you mentioned earlier, Richard Ramirez, who is also known as the Night Stalker, frequently invoked the name of Satan. Right. The Manson family cult, while not a satanic cult— smacked of the fear of satanic cults and uh, many of them were accused of being a satanic cult which is actually kind of ironic because manson called himself jesus christ at one point right and he listed his religion as scientology at one point although i don't think he was ever a due paying member uh of the church of scientology no, i don't no. think he had money not, yeah. not not a lot i mean like yeah like yeah. we mentioned before he tried to pay off his parole officers with monopoly money so he's not like uh i don't think he had the funds Yeah. And there were other examples, too. But like the fear of this panic did inspire some people to go out and do some terrible things. Right. And if fear is going to inspire you to do anything, it could be to um, listen to these ads. Okay, the major thing to sort of end on here is we were talking about is there was so much of what came out of this that was like from first witness account testimony. And it's it's worth asking. I mean, obviously, there were these situations we saw where people were being directly misled into believing things that had happened to them that didn't happen to them. Right. But a not insignificant chunk of this came from this practice of recovering repressed memories or this whole repressed memory or recovered memory therapy movement that took place that overlapped with a lot of what was going on here. Yeah, I know we're going to unpack this, but I think the idea of a repressed memory is really fascinating. Because it just it, it assumes that you have like a locked cabinet in your brain yeah. that cannot be unlocked. Like you've lost the key to it. You, like it's there and it and you don't even know where the key is because you don't even know that cabinet's there. And you like suddenly discover it. And it's like, oh, <laughs> here's all these pictures I forgot. Oh, I found my will, you know. Yeah. So as previously stated with some of the cases that have been since dismissed or commuted, there were a large amount of these false confessions. And this was because of their surge in this repressed memories thing. We talked about that Michelle remembers book from 1980. Like that was a real kind of like starting point for this thing to really kind of take hold. Yeah. So this was a large movement that spanned sort of the seventies, eighties, nineties and beyond. And the veracity of this is hazy because as we discussed around sexual abuse that had been largely taboo and not spoken about until it started being spoken about in the seventies. So there was some real sexual abuse cases that were previously unknown that just kind of suddenly came to light. And so the sense of there being things that were hidden under the surface and there was real. 
The sense of those things being repressed memories, however, sort of capitalized on that to sell their idea of repressed memories as being a thing. So I think in order to understand this kind of discussion a little bit more, we need to know what the word veracity means. So veracity, kind of in context, you can get that it has to do with the truth, confirming to facts and being accurate is really all it means. Oh, I like that word. That's a veracity is a good word. It is a good word. Yeah, I like it. So this all seemed to give the impression that that thing, that event had been forgotten and then suddenly remembered. And that is kind of the crux of this repressed memory thing. There's a whole cottage industry and litigation industry sprung up. And it kind of just popped up into existence with the credulity granted to the recovered memory therapy. So this starts to pick up. This takes root, and now there's an entire big business around repressed Huge. memories. Therapists could coax people into forming actually traumatic memories of events that never took place, but patients believe that they did, which has got to be really confusing and and kind of like jarring to find out that it actually didn't happen. Those memories frequently resulted in court trials and millions of dollars awarded to plaintiffs and their lawyers and expert testimony psychotherapists. So that's a real problem. Yeah. And well, you got to imagine if you've convinced someone who didn't suffer trauma that they did suffer trauma, that this often resulted in then actual emotional trauma that they they suffered because they're now living into the reality they have created about whatever trauma they believe that they experienced. They never actually experienced, but now they have the feeling that they did and that that they were led to believe that they suffered. And in addition to that, additional whiplash trauma when it's un, when it's later discovered that the whole thing was a complete sham and they weren't actually repressing those traumatic memories. Right. Like just that's a crazy emotional roller coaster to be on. Right. Absolutely. It is so sad. And I think that's why I kind of always go back to like Looking at the evidence, looking at what the research shows before I adopt a stance on something in terms of like my practice, because there's no research to support any of this stuff. Right. I mean, to the degree that the APA has largely positioned themselves against the idea of repressed memory uh, with the caveat that, quote, concerning the issue of recovered versus a pseudo memory. Like many questions in science, the final answer is yet to be known, but most leaders in the field agree that although it is a rare occurrence, a memory of early childhood abuse that has been forgotten can be remembered later. However, these leaders also agree that it is possible to construct convincing pseudo memories for events that never occurred, end quote. So it's it, what basically what they're saying is it's more likely to construct a memory that never happened than to recover a memory that was that you had forgotten. Yeah, and generally speaking, it's well understood now in psychology that not only are we unlikely to suppress traumatic events, those are actually likely, unfortunately, memories that tend to stay with us long, like more than almost anything else. They tend to be particularly sticky memories because of the nature of the trauma. Like we we tend to hold on to that, and it shapes a lot of our experiences moving forward. Like I, I imagine that for some people, they would say, "I wish I could forget this thing that happened to me," but they can't right. like traumatic memories are actually much more likely to, to stick around more intensely because they're 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 bad and on top of that too i mean it is i think it's important to note that like trauma is very complex and i think every person that experiences a certain trauma like has different experiences with that yeah but basically like what we're saying is that while trauma itself is this really complex kind of unique thing and every individual has like different ways to cope and manage and work through it this idea of repressed memories is not a thing not a thing in the way that it was used and certainly not a thing in the way that it was weaponized against people through the lens of the satanic ritualistic stuff. And we've been needing to do, I think, full unpacking of repressed memories by themselves and that whole concept. And so I think there's going to be people I, I read the, you know, I see the YouTube comments and people who extract one little piece of something we've said and extrapolate that into something that we completely didn't say or even allude to. Right. But if what you're hearing in this is that we're saying that people do not experience forgetting traumatic memories, that's not what we're saying. Obviously, forgetting happens for a variety of reasons. We've even done a whole episode on forgetting. And that there's, it's, it's not to say that everyone will remember every traumatic thing that's ever happened to them. You, you very well might forget some things. Sure. The idea of a repressed memory actually is this idea of like our unconscious mind is 
pushing an explicit memory into an unattainable space so that it cannot cause us trauma, there is no evidence for that whatsoever. It doesn't make conceptual right. sense. doesn't make philosophical sense. It doesn't make realistic sense. It doesn't make common right. sense. And you can't, there's no evidence for it anywhere. So like, although we can certainly help recover memories that have been lost due to forgetting for various reasons that can happen, things can be lost due to brain trauma, things can be lost due to other circumstances, etc. drug use, other traumas, like there's various reasons that things might be forgotten and that those memories could potentially be recovered. The idea of our unconscious mind repressing a memory so it can't cause us further trauma does not make any sense. And I believe that that is antithetical to a scientific approach to understanding psychology and memory in general. I like it. Good point. Well, we should probably give everyone a little bit of a break from my tirades. You know, every once in a while, you just need a palate cleanser from my voice. And that palate cleanser might be worse than my voice, which would be ads. Or maybe not. Maybe my voice is perfectly soothing and enjoyable. Let's talk about another group of people that were explicitly affected by both satanic panic and explicitly the repressed recovered memory movement. Yes. So we are here to talk about the Ingram. So Paul Ingram was accused by his daughters of sexual abuse as part of satanic rituals in which he was accused of raping his daughters hundreds of times, as well as bestiality and other other crimes. Their revelation came from recovered memory therapy. Okay, so the going back to kind of the recovered memory stuff that, that was the big business back then, Paul was also subjected to recovered memory therapy to which he began to believe in and confess to these crimes. The mother was also later implicated. Okay, this is a very long, giant, complicated story with a well-documented timeline we're not going to go into. So I'm going to try and sum it up as quickly as I can. First, the daughter's claims were both contradictory and inconsistent. They claimed things that literally could not have happened because one contradicted the other. And they also, again, there was never any evidence to back up any of the things that they said. They made claims about them being like in a, a forced to participate in a group orgy type thing where they were videotaped. There was never any videotape. There's never any photographs. There's never any blood, semen, hair, clothing, anything that indicated any of this. There's never fingerprints. They also, of course, had other satanic rituals similar to the school that they claimed where there was like bones and sacrifices and bestiality, but they never found bones. They never found animal remains. They never found paraphernalia. They never found any allusions to satanic anything at all. Right. And this family was like, they were a religious family. They were seen as being this exemplary archetype of the perfect like a nuclear family you know the husband and wife one employed i think the the mother was a homemaker but i don't recall exactly the father was like a deputy with the police the kids did great in school white picket fence the whole nine yards everything was great and then it comes out that like there was actually that they were secretly the satanic group the whole time so i think part of it was the contrast was alluring to people but then like right. because they were so caught off guard, Paul was eventually convinced he did these things and he can then confess to it. Right. Paul was eventually released in 2003 after serving his sentence. But the fact that he had to spend any time in jail for something that he very likely did not commit any sort of crime he had, he did not commit, I think is, is pretty telling of kind of the impact of this type of satanic panic in this false memory, the repressed memory thing. Yeah. There's another thing that we have to talk about. It's called don't make me go back. Mommy, a child's recollection of satanic abuse. Which, I mean, on the surface, that is immediately, like, as a human being, that makes you scared for that child. If that were, like, if you didn't look beyond what that title was. Yeah. But this book was a child's picture book depicting images of abuse and brutal sacrifice done during satanic rituals. This was commonly found at therapist's office and police stations, and it was often used to help coax out description and confessions from the child victims. But it's often led to, again false confessions because a lot of times in those discussions, these types of books, these types of questions that are asked during these tend to prime potential victims to answer a certain way and to please the investigators and whatnot. Yeah. It gives them like a thing to say when they didn't have something to say before. Right. And again, like this wasn't based on anything. This wasn't like a real life account. It was like, it was this totally non-evidence based thing that nevertheless was being used as sort of a guide and handbook for people to investigate these when when there was no evidence. So it was just right. more problematic paraphernalia in the satanic panic. <laughs> right. Exactly. 
the other thing to consider is like there were other things going on. So in 1978, there was the Jonestown massacre. Again, wild story, probably deserves its own full length episode. Over 900 people died in this massacre, 300 of which were 17 or younger. And this was a religious extremist group, not a satanic religious extremist group, a Christian religious extremist group. So like there were versions of this that were going on that were like there was no evidence of satanic panic happening and there were actual children dying in these other extremist cults. We had talked about doing an episode on cults in general and what you find is most of them come from a theistic like a a place where the leader is either a child of God connected to God some version of God right never Satan like it's never it's never Satan that's that's leading the cult. Yeah, I think it actually kind of kicks us off nicely into our take-home point. I think if I were to describe the Satanic Panic, because we didn't, we sort of just talked about what happened during the Satanic Panic. It was a period of time during which heightened fear of these supposed Satanic cults resulted in people who were prosecuted and imprisoned for engaging in these rituals, but there was never any evidence at all. So there was a ton of money and time and investigation spent looking into this. And as far as we can tell, there has never been any satanic cult that has ever carried out ritualistic sacrifice, particularly of other humans ever in the world. As far as we know, yeah, like it's that clear, like that's where we're at with the, with the evidence is that there is no evidence that that has ever taken place. It just made me think that like, this is the kind of episode that reiterates why reading and critical thinking is such an important skill to have. Totally. Just because it's so easy to take something and run with it as like, especially when it's a scare tactic. I mean, a lot of the satanic panic, kind of the core of it is something that's been done for centuries and it's effectively an appeal to emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, that's really ultimately what it comes down to. It's an appeal to emotion that drives people who, without those critical thinking skills to go do things that they normally wouldn't do. Yeah. Right. They're accusing people of things that didn't happen because they are scared that something happened or they're convinced that something happened through this highfalutin fear that they're experiencing. Absolutely. I don't have any other take on points. Anything else from you? The only thing I would say is that as you if you leave this episode and you feel like there are parallels with things that are happening today in 2023, you're right. Absolutely. Like the extremist group has selected an other group that is the target of vitriol and blame and all that stuff. And then you will find that 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 group that protests too much are typically the perpetrators. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The finger pointing often comes from the actual uh, guilty party because, again, yeah. deflects attention away from themselves before there's suspicion cast on them. They can get suspicion cast on others. So, yep, exactly. It's a dangerous gamble, though. That's why drag queens are often targeted. That's why LBGTQ yeah. folks are, are targeted. And then you find out that the Catholic Church is actually the one that's doing most of the work. not wrong you're not wrong the evidence is there that's an objective that's an objective thing i'm not saying that because uh of my personal beliefs that is an actual objective thing that we're seeing yeah well i mean that's a i think that's part of it is like if the people who are out there saying like we need to get rid of drag queens because of abuse to our children i'm like you're not only not protecting the children you're making people feel safe when you haven't addressed the problem of times when children are actually a danger. And so you're actually making right. the danger more real for them. Like yep. drag queens are not, are not hurting kids, but other people are, but preachers are. Yeah. And you're not going after them. So like you, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a whole nother episode. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I don't have any more take on points. I'm going to stop right there. We've managed to avoid some politics up to this point, but <laughs> we did so good. We found our way there. Well, we're going to recommend some things for you as we always do. It's, it's our weekly recommendation list. Yeah. Not necessarily things that were from the last week, although in this case they are, but first I'd like to acknowledge the people who help make this show happen without whom we probably wouldn't be here. This is a group of Patreon people that we love. It is Mike M, Megan, Layla, Mike T, Justin, Kim, Joshua, Brad, Stephanie, Olivia, Brian, and Ashley. You guys are the best. Everyone else, you may join that list, and we'd love to say your name, too. So if you can, whatever you can give, you get some bonuses by going over there. We appreciate you all. If you could also support us by simply leaving us a rating and review, subscribe, follow us on the various social media platforms. You can follow us on Spotify. We can get us there. You know, reach out and just tell a friend, say something nice, click five stars, 
You can pick up some merch at our merch store if you're so inclined. We got mugs and all shirts and hats and all kinds of things. Yeah. In addition to that, my crew of incredibly talented, amazing people includes Justin, who does our audio engineering, Emma Wilson, who is our social media coordinator. And of course, thank you so much today, Shane, for recording with me. Hey, anytime. And I couldn't do this without my listeners either. We appreciate you all. So without further ado, let's go ahead and talk about our recommendations. Recommendations. I am recommending a movie. It is a sequel. So you, if you haven't checked out the first one, you might want to. The first movie is called Becky, which is a revenge movie. The way I've described it is is kind of like Home Alone, but if it were made rated R. Uh-huh. The fatal things that happened to the people in that show that were done for comedy actually killed people and were not done for comedy, but instead for kind of horror effect. Yeah. That's Becky. So the sequel is called Wrath of Becky, which follows our main character a few years later. It's fun. It's it's a really fun movie. They're relatively short, tidy little hour, 20-minute, hour, 30-minute-ish uh, movies. I think they're streaming right now on Amazon Prime or some other video platform. You can find them out there if you look for them. But Becky and Wrath of Becky, if you're into violent revenge movies that are kind of silly and over the top, these are a fun way to go. I love stuff like that. I just love a good revenge movie. I think they're so fun. In particular, the main the person who's exacting revenge is like a 12-year-old girl. Even better. Maybe as old as 17 in the second one, but young. I like that. That's good. All right. So my recommendation this week is a Star Wars movie show yes. thing. Lovely. I like Star Wars, and I am a Star Wars dork. Nice. And so I was a little bit skeptical about this show in particular, even though I like Rosario Dawson. And that is a show called Ahsoka. It's an eight episode series and so the cast is fantastic rosario dawson plays ahsoka tano who was if you're not familiar with star wars lore is anakin skywalker's padawan and so like she's trained directly by darth vader before he was darth vader david tennant plays a cyborg in it or a robot in it named hugh yang and this is notably the last performance of ray stevenson before he passed away Oh, okay. And he plays a character named Balin Skull, who is uh, like a kind of a dark Jedi, like a, like a Knights of Old type of thing. Mm. Every actor in this show is fantastic. Lars Mikkelsen is Mads Mikkelsen's brother, okay. is in it as well. And he plays a really great character. Cool. Hayden Christensen comes back as Anakin Skywalker in some flashbacks. Nice. It is beautiful. And it sets up so many cool storylines. Like they have to do with like witches and magic and zombies in the Star Wars world. It is so good. So anyway, I recommend everybody go to see it. Just watch it wherever you can watch it. It's fantastic. Nice. All right. We have Wrath of Becky and Ahsoka. For all of you who are wondering what we talked about, Wrath of Becky being a movie, Ahsoka being the TV <laughs> show. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to write in and tell us about your experiences with Satanic Panic, I asked around and like people who are like my parents' generation around the 80s, like they just had no memory of this whatsoever. But yeah. Anyway, we'd love to hear if you have something to say about this. You can email us directly at info at www.wwdpodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on the various social media platforms. We look forward to hearing from everyone about that. You can also tell us about TV shows and movies that you're currently into, revenge movies and Star Wars themed TV shows yeah you'd like to recommend but look forward to hearing from everybody who has something to say if you haven't reached out to us before give it a shot we're friendly and we're talking to people so yeah of course yeah we love hearing from you i think that's all i got anything you need to add or that i forgot before we wrap up today shane no that covers it for me all right then this is abraham this is shane we're out see ya you've been listening to why we do what we do you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.